How y'all doing? Most of you know who I am. Um, if, uh, we've been properly introduced. Uh, I'm the pastor, semi-new pastor of Middle School Ministries. And I say semi-new because I've actually been here since July of 2011. And uh, I can't believe it's, it's been that long already. Uh, but it's been great. You know, my family and I, we've adjusted really well. Um, we're so happy to be here. Our ministry has been extremely blessed. Uh, we've really just seen God do wonderful things um, through our volunteer staff. And our students' lives are, have been changed, and they're being changed right in front of us. It's, it's really quite amazing. And uh, if you get a chance, just, just ask one of them. I'm sure they would love to tell you how different they are because they have a relationship with Jesus. And uh, it's, just, it's just amazing. And I want to start off by just saying a couple things. Uh, for those of you in Timothy class, um, I'm, I'm not preaching on the Palestinian covenant. That's an inside joke. Ask somebody, they'll tell you about it. Right, Kevin? That's pretty funny, right? Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be teaching on the Palestinian covenant. Um, I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a different slant approach to Romans, uh, Romans 10 tonight now. But I just want to first just introduce you to who I am. Um, my family and I joined Valley from Texas. Uh, and, and it's funny to me because Big Dave was telling me just last week uh, how my accent has changed. And he said, I'm starting to sound like I'm from California. And, you know, I don't really know how I feel about that. Uh, that's actually pretty scary to me for some reason. You know, over the last five years, uh, my wife and I have really just, I'm going to be, I'm just, I'm not going to be, I'm just going to tell you straight up, guys. My wife and I, and even since getting here, we've kind of just felt like we've kind of been run through the ringer a little bit. Uh, I, I mean, this country has been in a recession recently. I think they've officially decided on that, figured that out, you know. But, but it really seems like my family and I really started the process early. And we had a jump start on that. Anybody in here identify with that? Is there anybody here be like, yeah, that's me. I mean, it started back in 2007 for us. My stepfather, who was only 44 years old at the time, uh, he had a severe stroke. And it left the whole left side of his body paralyzed. And what makes it worse is is that uh, he was a main source of income for my parents at the time. Jennifer and I had to move from West Texas to Dallas to help support my mother. It was a, it was a real difficult time for us. Uh, they were in the process of moving. They were, they were just buying a new house. I mean, that weekend they were moving out, and then my step, I mean, they were loading up the truck. And all of a sudden, life, I mean, just, just bad stuff happened. And it, it, was, really, it was really difficult but God used that time to save my mother and my stepfather both. Amen. That following year was just as bad, though, because we were still reeling from the move. And having my mother live with us wasn't a good idea, especially when you get laid off six months later, you know. I was laid off for a period of uh, about six months. The economy went down, and, and it seemed like at the time the car that we were driving, remember, it fell apart, finally broke. So we had it for years. Finally broke down, and man, it's just like, I can't catch a break. Well, I finally got a job, and at the time, we were, you know, we were living with my mom still. She was staying with us, and it, and it seemed like things were going on the up and up, and that was until uh, December of that same year when I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. My first cousin, who was like a younger brother to me, passed away in a tragic car accident. You know, but the crazy thing is, is like all things, that time came to pass, and we found ourselves serving at a young church leading out the student ministries there. We were brought on staff on a volunteer basis with the hope of going full-time. 
my dream, my, I, I, God had laid it on my heart for full-time gospel ministry. And I never stopped. Every day, I thought about it. I yearned for it. I wanted it. This was probably the most trying time for me. Because I juggled a full-time job trying to knock out a bachelor's degree and doing ministry what seemed like full-time. In 2010, it seemed like things were great until a week before Christmas. That same year when I was laid off again. For the next few months, I struggled to find work. And just about the time I thought we were going to be brought on full-time <clears throat> at the church, we were told they felt we weren't ready for full-time ministry. I was, I was actually put on a probationary period. And I was like, seriously? Lord, seriously? I say all this because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the grace of God keeping us in his will during that time. I wanted to give up. I wanted to quit, and I wondered if God had made a mistake when he called me to full-time ministry. It was the most discouraging time in my life. I wonder if there's anyone in here who can identify with that. Maybe you feel that way now. Maybe you feel like just recently you felt that way. And maybe the calm, the calm in your life now is actually just the calm before the, the, the storm. I know during this time I read Matthew 13, and, and that's the chapter that tells us the parable of the sower. I want to talk about some pretty convicting stuff there. I remember reading it and thinking to myself, am I that seed that fell among the rocks? That was choked out? That was withered and dried up because my roots weren't deep enough? Was I the seed that fell among the thorns and was snuffed out by the cares of this world? Was I, was I wrong in, in, in pursuing what God wanted for my life? Were the, was the idea of finances, the idea of security for my children, consistent uh, uh, food on the table, it just seemed like those things, I, I would go to church and I would praise Jesus and, and I would come home and then it, it was like, oh my gosh, I still have, the problems didn't go away. And I wondered, and I wondered, and I was like, is there something wrong with me? I mean, the thought of where our next meal was going to come from, the thought of how we were going to pay the rent or, or keep the lights on, uh, lights on would constantly nag at me. I would actually start thinking about the people that I knew that didn't know Christ and how they prospered, and it really bothered me. I wanted to give up. I almost lost hope. Have you, any of you in here ever felt that way? Have you ever asked yourself those same questions? You see, because there's this overarching principle in the New Testament, right, that says it takes more than a superficial commitment to Jesus Christ to endure hard times. Jesus said it in John chapter 8 when he said, you are truly my disciples if you remain in my teaching. He was teaching some hard stuff. We see in the Gospels that Jesus wouldn't give or commit himself over to the people that followed him because he knew that their hearts were wicked. Immediately after feeding the 5,000 in, in, the, in the gospel of, uh, of John, you read in the very next chapter uh, how he told those that were following him that they only followed him because they had gotten a good meal. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are actually blessed. You see, the reality is that Jesus knows our hearts. And he constantly challenged those that followed him with the idea of extreme devotion. And I really believe that that we, we are fooling ourselves if we think we can get by with a superficial commitment to Jesus Christ. We won't make it. There will be hard times. What we do during those, during those hard times, 
or tell what we're made of. I think Philippians 1.29 sums it up when Paul says, it's been granted to you by Jesus Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer. And I think we forget that a little bit sometimes. I, I, think, I, think, we, I think we might be sending the wrong message sometimes when we say, yeah, you know what, Christ saved me, he did, but he never, never promised me anything, anything more. Now I'm gonna be real honest with you tonight. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanna be careful because this pulpit doesn't belong to me. I know who it belongs, I know whose who's it is, and, uh, Pastor Phil is a, just an amazing teacher, and I, I'm, I don't want to come to you. I come to you guys in weakness tonight. I'm not, the, I'm, not, I'm not the greatest theologian. I wouldn't even call myself one. I just love God, and I love students, and I just want to see students' lives change, you know. <laughs> but I, uh, I speak passionately about anything. Yeah. And it just, it just, I don't know why, it just happens, you know. So if it seems like if I start yelling and spitting and stuff, you know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to uh, um, come to you in the flesh and try to outdo, knock out a home run or, you know, try to show that I'm like this super cool, smart preacher dude. Because I'm not. I'm just a really small worm on a really big hook right now. So I'm going to be real honest with you tonight. <laughs> I'm going to be real honest with you tonight. Because for those in here who are passionately in love with Jesus, all right, this message will be encouraging. But I'm going to be, I'm going to be honest because if, 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 if I don't know your heart because only, only God knows those who are truly committed to him. I do believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ, okay? But for those of you who, who might have made a shallow commitment uh, to Jesus, it, it might make you feel a little uncomfortable. It was convicting for me too. And uh, for those of you, my, by the way, who, <laughs> uh, who uh, gave me a hard time about the uh, originality of this, uh, this sermon title, uh, it really means something to me. Okay, so uh, hopefully you'll get it in a minute. But I don't want to confuse you or upset you. I don't, I don't like to confuse or manipulate people. I'm starting to feel real comfortable now, so. But what I am going to do is I'm going to tell you what the Bible says through the Apostle Paul in Romans concerning our commitment to Christ. Now, I'm going to take a different slant approach to Romans 10, and I'm going to give you some historical context on what it meant in that day to claim Jesus as Lord. Now, Paul is writing, to the letter, writing the letter to the church that's in Rome. Now, Rome is the largest city on the planet in the first century. Over a million people lived just inside the city-state they called Rome. Now, there was a church in Rome, right? And it was a very tiny church. And we don't really know the exact numbers of how many Christians were part of this church, but it was probably less than 200. Okay, so Paul is writing this letter to a small group of Christians who live in a city that was ruled by a man named Caesar. Now, there were lots of famous Caesars that lived. Many of y'all know Little Caesar. Not talking about that guy. All right? There was Caesar Augustus. There was uh, Julius Caesar. And then later on, there was some really bad guys like Diocletian, hated Christians, killed a bunch of them. There was Vespasian, who had a systematic persecution of Christians. And then there's the one we all know 
And we all know his name. His name was Nero. Nero hated Christians. He actually despised them. And when the great fire that burned through Rome happened, it was Nero who blamed it on the Christians. Now, that single event started the biggest, most unprecedented persecution of Christians the church had ever seen up until that time. Now, you can pick up any college-level history book and, and read about all the terrible things they used to do to Christians. For instance, they would tie a Christian's four limbs, arms and legs, to horses. They would smack him with a whip, and as the horses would run, they would pull the Christian's lim uh, limbs off of them. They would take these giant metal saws, and they would, they would slice them up. You'll also read how many of the Christians were forced to wander around in animal skins. They would actually kill, the Romans would kill animals, they would skin them, actually remove their pelts off of their bodies, and to, then to embarrass those who come from a Jewish context, they would put those dead animal skins on them and sometimes feed them to the lions in the Colosseum, covered with the bloody coat of a dead sheep or a dead goat. So Paul writes this letter to, a, to the church in Rome. And they were starting to suffer from the persecution, but the worst was still to come. So let me read to you what Paul says in Roman 10, uh, Romans 10, and then I'm going to tell you exactly what he was referring to. And uh, we're going to read, in, uh, we're going to start off in verses, uh, verses 8. Romans 10, verse 8. Here's what it says. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now that's Deuteronomy 30, 14, by the way. And he's quoting the Old Testament, a book that, Je that Jesus often quoted. Now let's play, uh, play, pay special attention to, uh, to verse 9. Here's what it says. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he explains it. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now let me finish, finish reading this out, and then I want to come back to that. Verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to point out a word right there in verse 12. Bestowing riches. I want you to just keep that in the, in, in the back of your mind. Now, I'm not trying, let me, let me tell you what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to make this a formula. I'm not trying to dumb down the mysterious, amazing process of salvation. God's amazing ability to save us by his grace. But essentially, here is what Paul is saying to the church in Rome. That if you want to be saved, God requires two things from you. I know I just stepped in it, okay? Number one, you've got to believe something and number two, you've got to say something. There are two parts of us that need to be engaged, our hearts and our mouths. Now, I want to be clear in saying that none of us in here can save ourselves. None of us in here can forgive ourselves. We need someone bigger, smarter, and stronger than us to bail us out of this mess we're in called sinners. 
you will easily find that in order for our hearts and mouths to be engaged, it takes a miraculous work of God in order for this to happen. Read John 6, 37, 39, 44. I'm not, I'm, I'm not here to, 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 to teach the doctrines of grace, but I want to be clear in what I'm saying. You see, because I think the biggest hijacking in the church today, and I want to be careful because that's God's bride, that's Christ's bride, but the biggest hijacking of the church today is that we make the rules in our own salvation. We don't save us. God saves us. But we do have a responsibility in that process. Now back to our hearts and our mouths. Our hearts need to believe something. <laughs> My heart believes lots of things. I believe that sweet tea is the nectar of heaven, and you're wasting your time drinking anything other than sweet tea. Amen. Bottom line, all right? It's a conviction. I'm from Texas. Lock me up, all right? <laughs> I believe skim milk is a, is a joke <laughs> and an insult to all intelligent people. I believe that my wife is my partner that God gave me. I love her. Hopefully she loves me, and we will be married to the day one of us dies or until Jesus comes back, whichever one comes first. Okay, I believe that. Some of you might not agree with this one. I believe Walmart's better than Target. I also believe that Pepsi is better than Coke. These are some things that I believe. Now... Don't get distracted. Don't get sidetracked. All right? There are some things that I say with my mouth. All right? There are some things that I say. The things I believe in my heart, I say out loud. For instance, I love the 49ers. I, I, I have since I was a kid, and so I say it out loud. I'm a big basketball fan, all right? And I love to play, and I've always pulled for the Lakers, all right? Whatever. Don't judge me. You see, I say things with my mouth that I believe in my heart. Now, let me just speak to the young people for just a second. And by young, I mean junior and senior high, right? Everybody was in here like, keep talking, right? Some of you might find yourself in that situation where you say, I'm a Christian because I say I love Jesus. I'm a Christian because I believe that God exists. I'm a Christian because every time an invitation is given, I walk down front or raise my hand. Now, what Paul is saying to the church, he's saying to the church at Rome, is that you have to believe certain things in order to be saved. You can't just pick and choose. You have to believe that Jesus is Lord, and you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. And you have to say it. I'm going to read it again, and then I'm going to tell you a true story. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, when Paul says, if you want to be saved, you have to confess that Jesus is Lord, that meant something to those people. And in order to understand that, you have to understand who Caesar was. Caesar was the equivalent of the president of the United States, except he had uh, total and complete authority. And he ruled Rome with an iron fist. And see, Rome ruled the entire territory that we know as the Middle East 
and all the way parts to, to India and, and into the, the northern United Kingdom. And there was one guy in Rome uh, who ruled, and his name was Caesar. And so Caesar believed that he was God. And so he put it on their coins. Every coin was stamped with a picture of Caesar, and then he passed a law, and the law was simply this. To make sure that nobody in the entire Roman Empire ever messed with the peace of Rome, and some of y'all might remember this from, from world history classes, it was called the Pax Romana. It was a time of peace. And there was a way that Caesar inst he instituted that peace, and he kept the peace. Caesar passed a law that says anytime you were anywhere in public, wherever you were in the Roman Empire, and you came face to face with the Roman soldier, you had to recite a Roman slogan. And here was, and here was a Roman slogan. Caesar is Lord. It was everywhere. Three simple words. So if you're walking down the street going to get some groceries, and you and your family uh, would encounter a Roman soldier, you were required to stop what you were doing, lift up the palms of your hands. This was symbolic. All right? Not only was it a sign of worship in that time, but it also showed that you didn't have any weapons. You had to drop your head and say three words. Caesar is Lord. And if you said those words, you went about your way. You didn't even really have to mean them. You didn't even really have to believe them. All you had to do was say those three words, Caesar is Lord. And anybody anywhere could simply just get away simply by dropping their heads, opening up their hands and saying Caesar is, is Lord. You, you were free to go. You see, the church in Rome had a big problem, though. They didn't believe Caesar was Lord. They weren't going to worship Caesar. You see, because they believed something. They believed Jesus was Lord. You see, so they didn't confess with their mouths what they didn't believe in their hearts. But the problem with us is sometimes is that we do the exact opposite. We often say things that we really don't believe in our hearts. Let me give you an example of this. I work with teenagers. Many of those teenagers right now will profess to be in love. Some of them are probably holding hands. Shouldn't do that in church. <laughs> and what I mean by this simply is that most of them have professed undying love all right, to what is now, all right, they have past tense professed undying love to someone who is now probably their ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. And it, it, it's, it's funny to me, and I, I tell that to girls all the time. One day you're in love, and you're putting it all over Facebook, right? And the next day you hate them, and you're telling everybody, and you're putting it all on Facebook, <laughs> you know? Now, kidding aside, very seriously, we often say things with our mouths that we don't believe. We say things sometimes that, that we really don't mean. I don't, I don't think we do this maliciously, but I think sometimes we do that. And what Paul is saying here to the church in Rome, he says that if you really, really want to be saved, you got to believe that there is nobody bigger than Jesus. you got to believe there is nobody better than Jesus. There is no one more worthy than Jesus. No one who could save you but Jesus. And you've got to, you've got to say it with your mouth and believe it with your heart. Three words. Jesus is Lord. Now, by the time Nero became Caesar, he hated Christians. He felt like the Christians were trying to take away all his power and all his authority. 
right? Now, historians like, like uh, Josephus, Tacticus, and Fox's books of, uh, Book of the Martyrs tell stories about how Christians were totally and completely persecuted, but there is one thing that really stands out, and this is the one I really want to take the rest of our time with. Now, Caesar decided that, he, that he, was, uh, he was going to make an example out of Christians. And every so often, Caesar would throw parties. I like parties. Anybody else like parties? I like parties because usually somebody else throws them and somebody else usually cleans up. You know what I mean? Now, Caesar would throw parties, and he would throw them for the renowned people of that time. Now, Caesar had mansions probably bigger than this room right here. All right, probably bigger than this building. And they were nice and luxurious, uh, and uh, they were adorned with gold, and, and they were all pretty, and, and he would try to impress uh, those, those people that he would invite pretty much. Uh, but what he was saying with, with all his luxuries was that, look, how, look at me, look how awesome I am. He was saying, look, I have all the riches in the world. I'm God. Look at all my authority. I can do anything I want. So when you imply, I'm sorry. So in order to get into these parties, you would have to come face to face with Caesar. Now, as you would walk into these mansions, to these rooms, they were greeted by Caesar. And as he were greeted by Caesar, Caesar, he was sitting on his throne. Now he's sitting on his little throne. And to his right and to his left were these Roman guards. And these were the top-notch elite Best of the best Roman guards, right? And when you would walk in, when, when people would walk in there with these basins, right? And uh, what there was, it was it, there was these basins and there was an altar. And on that altar was a fire. And it burned right before Caesar. And in order to get into these parties, what they would do is they would grab a pinch of incense, throw it on the altar... It would rise up. Caesar would smell it. Ooh, it's good. They would open up their palms, bow their heads. Caesar is Lord. And that's how they got in. Now, at these parties that would sometimes last three to five to seven days were just about every desire you could think of. There was an abundance of food, dancing, music, wine. And I want to be careful now in how I say this but even prostitutes. And Caesar wanted to make sure that the men he led into his parties could feast their flesh on every sinful, wicked desire in his heart. So history tells us that people would party for a week at these things. Now, anybody in their right mind would walk up to Caesar and be like, oh yeah, whatever, Caesar is Lord, let me into this party, right? I don't really mean it, but I want to get all liquored up. I don't really mean it, but I want to go eat. I want to go dance. I don't want to have to clean up. I want to get in and feast my flesh on whatever I crave. I want to get in. I want to go sleep with these women. By the way, before we start thinking that, uh, that those people were so diabolical, sinister, and wicked, remember that we are sinners in the like same way. We came out of our mother's womb steeped in iniquity, and if it were not for the grace of God, every single one of us left to ourselves could become members of the Taliban. Every single one of us could be the next Hitler. Every one of us in our own sin could do unspeakable evil apart from the redemption of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every single one of us. So Caesar decided he was going to make an example out of the Christians. 
because the church just kept growing. The more they persecuted the church, the more they would leave the city in Rome and take the gospel with them. Historians call that uh, the, 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 dias the diaspora or the great dispersion, the dispersion of the gospel. Now, the greatest form, I want to say this because I really believe this. The greatest form of evangelism that has ever existed is when the church is persecuted. We don't see that here in America, but our brothers and sisters in India see it. Our brothers and sisters in Muslim countries would say that as well. Our brothers and sisters in the Middle East would say that as well. You see, now Caesar had decided he was done. He was done with Christians, and he was going to invite some of them over to his party just to make an example. He wanted to show his friends how, how he was really God. He would invite them to his party to see if he could actually coax them into his party with free food, free wine, free dancing, free revelry, free prostitutes. But Caesar was thinking that if he could just get a few Christians to deny their faith, and come into his place and eat his food and eat his wine and dance to his music, the other Christians will realize this thing called the way or the Christian faith really isn't that great. But the church in Rome had been reading a letter. It had been reading the letter that the Apostle Paul had written to them. And remember that these two verses said that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So they would bring the Christians over to Caesar, and they would look at Caesar. They would stand before Caesar, and they would look at him in all his regalia, all right, flanked by a soldier to his left and to his right, who were not only bodyguards, but also had the authority to kill you on the spot if you did not recite the Roman slogan. Those Christians would walk up to Caesar. They would see him. They would see the altar, and they would see the incense, and they would see the flame, but instead of doing what they were supposed to do, now, now I really want you guys to listen, because we're about to see what it meant for someone to be truly saved from their sins and what it meant to endure hard times. Now, I'm not saying we, we have to do this. I'm not saying you have to do anything to get saved. Jesus did everything to save us. The work has been done. The grace has been poured out. Now we must respond in obedience and remain in obedience. And here's what those Christians did because they believed that Jesus is Lord. They would look at Caesar and they looked at the altar and they looked at the basin and they looked at the instance. Instead of dropping their heads and raising their hands and saying Caesar is Lord, they would look at Caesar and they would turn their back and they would lift their head, raise their arms and shout, Jesus is Lord. And before they could drop their hands, a Roman soldier had removed their head from their soldier shoulders, sorry, or had taken a spear and run it through their body. Christians died because they believe that Jesus is Lord. And because they believed it, they confessed it with their, their mouth. 
students. I'm going to talk to you guys, high school, junior high. I want to be real honest <laughs> because, to be quite frank, I don't know. God just, I just think that there's more. There's more. I'm just really, honestly, I want, I want radical devotion in my life. I want to reproduce these students so bad. I'm hoping that by looking at my life, students will say, wow, that's what it means to follow Jesus. But I get tired of giving meaningless invitations to asking students, people to bow their head and close their eyes and say a prayer. I don't want to give you guys an impression that when you trust Christ and you repent of your sins, that it's a private matter and that it will have no consequence, consequence in your life. That's a lie. And I don't want to lie to people. I want to tell you, I want to tell you this, that in your lifetime, if you are truly born again, following Jesus, you will have an opportunity to suffer for his name. You have opportunity to stand by his grace, not on your own strength, and testify to the power of the gospel. And some of you in this room may, may even have an opportunity, if God is willing, to give you the chance to die a martyr's death in another country, or who knows, maybe even in this one, one day, just because you believe that Jesus is Lord. Guys, church, we can't put salvation on a bumper sticker or a t-shirt or, or, or a bracelet. It's more than a Facebook status. It's got to be in here, and it's got to mean something. I know this guy, um, he's really, uh, well, we used to be pretty cool. We used to talk off and on when I lived in Texas, and his name is Clayton King. He's a, he likes to go around and preach. He's preached at Liberty University a whole bunch of times, and uh, he actually lives in South Carolina. And in his book, um, he wrote a book about uh, 12 years ago, actually about 16 years ago, called uh, uh, Journals of a Madman. He's a youth pastor. <laughs> Journals of a Madman. Uh, and he talks about his trip working in missionaries. And he tells this story in his book, and I wish I had a picture to show you. But he tells a story about a man named Paul Prasad. Paul Prasad was a preacher in a little province in India that was run by um, uh, Hindu extremists. And he would go and he would preach the gospel. Uh, and every Sunday he was out there and he was preaching the gospel. And he started this church and it was very small. But the, Hindus, the Hindu extremists would come and they would tell him, you better stop preaching the gospel or we're going to kill you. And he would stand, he would stand in their face and he would say, I'm not going to stop preaching the gospel. Jesus is Lord. And they would come every week. When one week he was preaching they took him outside and they, they beat the tar out of him. They said, stop preaching. The next week, Paul was there, Paul Prasad, preaching the gospel. They came in again, final warning, I will not stop preaching the gospel, Jesus is Lord. Next week, Paul was preaching the gospel. The Hindu extremists came back, took him outside again, in front of his congregation, beat him, tore him to pieces, disemboweled him, left him for dead. Paul was in the hospital, almost lost his life. As soon as he got better, he came back. 
was preaching the gospel. Hindus extremists came back again. Paul said, I will not stop preaching the gospel. Jesus is Lord. That Sunday, he was actually, the first Sunday he came back, he was actually preaching on forgiveness. And one of those Hindu extremists walked in and said, stop. Stop telling me about this Jesus who forgives and tell me how I can know him. And he led them to the Lord. It was crazy. Right, this, it, gets, it, gets, it gets even crazier. Five years goes by. Paul Prasad's still preaching. Different group of Hindu extremists come. Paul, you better stop preaching the gospel. Mm-mm. Jesus is Lord. I will not stop preaching the gospel. They didn't. They didn't waste no time. A few days later, showed up at his house, dragged him, his wife, and his 15-year-old daughter outside. They held Paul down. They beat him, beat his wife, shamed her, abused her in ways that shouldn't be mentioned from this pulpit. They were trying to get him to deny his faith. He would not. He kept saying, Jesus his Lord, his wife, Jesus is Lord. When they got done with his wife, they moved on. They said, okay, he's not going to do it. He's not going to deny his faith. Let's get his daughter. They did the same thing to his 15-year-old daughter. And he watched. And they said, Paul, they got out kerosene. They said, Paul, if you do not deny Jesus, we're going to pour this kerosene on your daughter, and we're going to light it on fire. She's 15 years old. And just before, just before Paul was going to renounce Christ, his daughter said, no, Daddy, they don't take my life. I give it. Jesus is Lord. And that day he watched his, his daughter burn. You see, it's more than a bumper sticker or a cliche or something we put on a t-shirt. If Jesus is Lord, that means that I'm not. In my life, if Jesus is Lord, that means that I'm not, regardless of what this culture tells me. We are not the center of our own world. We are not the most important thing that has ever happened. We do not deserve anything we want, and we may not even get everything we need. Because when we come to Christ as Lord, there is nothing that he promises us, and he is not, we're not guaranteed a fat bank account. It's not a guaranteed great job. It's not a guaranteed great marriage. It's not guaranteed uh, healthy, beautiful, obedient children. When we come to Jesus, we cry out in brokenness and in humility that we are sinful. And we're in desperate need of a Savior. And when we call on Jesus like that, there is one thing we get. We get Jesus. And he is enough. Amen. So is Jesus your Lord? At the beginning, I told you that this message would be challenging to those who have a superficial commitment, those who might have said something with their hearts that they actually didn't believe. So let me ask you, let me ask you this honestly. 
have you really, really been saved? Or are you just saying the words to get into the party? To those who are passionately, radically devoted to Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you. When our bank account isn't busting at the seams, Jesus is Lord. When our bank account is in the negative, Jesus is Lord. When we get what little income we may have, and with that 10%, we are saying, Jesus is Lord. When I'm faced with cancer, diabetes, and death, Jesus is Lord. In my brokenness, Jesus is Lord. When my children are disobedient, running after the world, Jesus is Lord. When my marriage is on the rocks and there is no hope and I have nothing left in me, Jesus is Lord. Is there anybody, anybody in this room tonight? No heads bowed, no eyes closed or anything like that. Someone who needs a Savior, would you be willing to stand up and say Jesus is Lord? Because that's what it's going to take. It's not a private matter that has no consequence in our life. He will change you. Father, thank you. God, I just thank you for uh, just for your word, Lord. Um, God, I thank you for uh, just what you lay on my heart and how you challenge me uh, to uh, to radical devotion. I hope I don't let you down, Lord. I hope none of us do. I could never repay you. Life that I, 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 the life that I have left, Lord, is all I have to offer. Would you use it? Would you make us different? Would we not leave this building unchanged? In Jesus' name, amen.